Welcome to the public rally. Since assuming office, President Donald Trump has attempted to expand the power of the executive branch from declaring a national emergency in order to construct a border wall to assassinating a foreign government official without congressional approval to ignoring congressional subpoenas during impeachment hearings. Does this reflect a permanent expansion of presidential powers or just part of an organic ebb and flow related to the office? Joining me to discuss presidential power is Professor Barbara Perry. Professor Perry is Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, where she co-directs the Presidential Oral History Program. She has authored or edited 14 books on presidents, first ladies, the Kennedy family, the Supreme Court, civil rights, as well as civil liberties. Professor Barbara Perry, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be with you. Since its inception, uh, the Office of President has rested in, in, in my view, uh, on scales that balance power and accountability. Sometimes there's an imbalance. From your perspective, where are we now? Out of balance, uh, I have to say, and I agree with you that uh, the original Constitution and the original view of the framers of that beautiful document had this exquisite sense of separation of powers and checks and balances that we all learn about in civics. I hope we do anyway, and certainly I've taught it for years and years in political science. Uh, and it was everything from dividing up power among three branches of government and separating those powers, sometimes sharing those powers, but making sure that they checked and balanced, and even that the political system itself, as Madison said in Federalist Paper 51, ambition should be made to counteract ambition, and then dividing up our levels of government. So we have local, state, and federal. And, of course, they had been through, the founders had been through the revolution where power was far away, and it was viewed as tyrannical through the parliament and the king, and so they wanted to make sure that they never got into a situation like that again, and unfortunately, that exquisite balance, which has not always been in balance, we should say that there were times over our history when Congress would assert itself, the court would, ex judiciary would ex exert itself, and the president would exert himself, but uh, I think we're particularly out of balance now. So can I assume from that answer uh, that you reach a different conclusion from President Trump when he, state, when he has stated on numerous occasions that Article 2 of the Constitution grants him the authority to do whatever he wants? I vehemently uh, disagree with him on that, as I do with those who uh, I think in a more responsible way and yet a more uh, an extreme way uh, believe in this so-called unitary theory of the executive that um, the executive power cannot be limited especially uh, in national security and I understand at least from scholars viewpoints on that unitary theory I understand where that comes from uh, you look at article 2 of the Constitution and it does house all executive power uh, or at least it just says executive power shall be within the executive branch, and obviously at the top of that is the president. And then there are the specific powers of commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy and even the state militia when they're acting in service to the United States. We've certainly known about now about the pardon power and commutation power, appointment, uh, treaty power, uh, and the power to uh, give a sense of the State of the Union to the Congress. So those are those very specific powers that are spelled out and a general grant of power. But it, it just 
defies understanding for me uh, how anyone could understand what the founders wanted and think that they wanted to give all power to the president with no checks and balances. Right. That that sounds like a regurgitation of the Hamilton Madison debate uh, during during the fe- writing of the Federalist Papers. Uh, many presidents, especially in the advent of the modern presidency, and I'm defining the modern presidency beginning with FDR, have often lamented some frustration uh, with the limits uh, placed on the presidency and and but for this particular president, I'm not criticizing. I'm just talking about his perspective, this particular president, President Trump, doesn't seem to be hampered or feels hampered by those limitations. And I wonder how you saw that. No, I think you're absolutely right that uh, he doesn't lament limitations because he doesn't see limitations. And he has said outright, as as you cited, uh, that the president can do anything uh, under Article 2. Or he says, Article 2 says that. Um, And again, I I understand from, from scholars uh, and I've been teaching this for years and years, both as a political scientist who specializes in the presidency, but one who also specializes in the courts and the Constitution and spent a year at the Supreme Court in the 90s. So I, I get where where he's coming from when, when he says, oh, I have executive power. And there's been an ongoing debate going back certainly to Lincoln in the Civil War about so-called prerogative power of the president, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, but the kings and queens and monarchs of England had a prerogative power that was viewed by John Locke as something that would be necessary in an emergency situation. And so we know what Lincoln did during the Civil War using that prerogative. Um, FDR, you mentioned, and I I agree with you, I I see the modern presidency beginning then uh, with the president taking on powers because of the Great Depression, because of World War II, uh, and Congress at first passing all those laws, but also at first the court striking down those pieces of New Deal legislation, much to FDR's upset, but there you had the check and balance. And when FDR gave a speech about that one time, he said, it's as if two, we got a, a horse-drawn uh, wagon with three horses, and two of them are pulling in the same direction. He meant himself and the Democratic, big D, Democratic Congress. And he said, the third branch, these awful judges, are pulling in the opposite direction, and that's going against what the people want. But that's exactly what the founders wanted. So um, FDR, of course, you know, tried to figure out ways around that by growing the administrative state in the federal bureaucracy uh, and doing what he thought needed to be done. And that's why he was elected uh, both in 1932 uh, to meet the, uh, the demands and the exigencies of the Great Depression because people thought Herbert Hoover wasn't doing a good job at that. So people voted for FDR to do something different, and they reelected him by a two-thirds landslide in 1936. And he talked about packing the court, you might remember. Yeah. Uh, because he was so upset that the court was striking down his New Deal legislation and no one was leaving. So he went all the way through his first year, first term, nobody left the court. And so he made up the scheme that for every justice over 70, he'd be allowed to appoint another justice up to a total of 15. And, uh, of course, the court wasn't buying that, but uh, Congress never bought it as well, and they are able to change the number of people on the court. And I also point that out because even though two-thirds of the electorate had voted for FDR in his re-election in 1936. There was never a majority of Americans supporting his court-packing scheme. They thought it was dictatorial. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Professor Robert Perry of the University of Virginia's Miller Center. And we're talking about presidential power. 
Um, you mentioned FDR and uh, Professor Perry, and, and, and so it seems to me when we, when we talk about presidential power, there has been, since its inception, sort of an ebb and flow. Uh, we t- you talked about Lincoln, and so you see an expansion of power with Lincoln. You see it, um, Woodrow Wilson, World War II, and the um, Espionage Act, and, and you mentioned FDR, the Depression of World War II, and we started again with George W. Bush post-9-11. But this is the first president that I recall where there's been an expansion of power void um, of a crisis. And is this an accurate assessment? How do do you account for this, if so? I think you're right to say that. Um, Now, he may say there's a crisis, and so I have to take out General Soleimani, the Iranian general, and and he's president tried to make that case, and people can decide whether they agree with that or whether they do not. Um, so there are times like that, and uh, again, we, we have to decide whether the president is creating an emergency situation as Nixon attempted to do. And you might recall that when he claimed executive privilege over the water, so-called Watergate tapes, those were the, the tape recordings that he made secretly of his phone calls and conversations. By the way, all presidents, going back to FDR, made various recordings. As soon as there was recording technology available, they started recording things. But it was Kennedy, Nixon, and, and Johnson who recorded the most. But what, remember what Nixon said, as the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, was that I can't release those. First of all, I have executive privilege, and that was a precedent set by George Washington, not in the Constitution, but precedent set set by George Washington to protect presidents and their conversations and their papers um, from becoming public. And what Nixon was saying was he couldn't release those tapes because of not only executive privilege that allowed him not to release it, but because it was in the national interest and for national security. And the court countered him. It agreed. Presidents have executive privilege, precedent set going back to George Washington, though not in the Constitution. And it is to protect military and diplomatic secrets. And then they countered that by saying the tapes were necessary in the criminal trials of what we now call all the president's men. That so is all the people who were working for Nixon who were being indicted. And remember, he was named an unindicted co-conspirator in the Watergate situation and cover-up. So that, that's where we get that precedent that a sitting president can't be criminally indicted. But his people were. And the U.S. Supreme Court in 1974 in the Nixon tapes case, U.S. v. Nixon, decides that those tapes must be turned over as evidence in criminal trials. So you do have presidents with genuine emergencies. The Civil War, the country was breaking apart and going to civil war. The Great Depression, a worldwide depression with more than 25% of the people out of work. World War II. Now you get, though, to Truman in the Korean War, and he attempts to seize the steel mills that were striking, the the labor and steel steel mills were striking, and Truman said, oh, we're at war in Korea, so I, commander-in-chief, prerogative power, I'm going to seize those steel mills and run them through the federal government. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, oh, wait a minute, that's a bridge too far. That's a step too far. And what they said was Congress in the Taft-Hartley Act, a labor law, had considered that possibility of letting the president have that power, specifically and statutorily, to seize industries in time of crisis. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. So the court said to Truman, can't do it. 
Now, we, we've talked about uh, in this conversation um, about the ebb and flow of presidential power, but would it be fair to say that we've seen more examples where the uh, power has flowed toward the president and fewer when it has been pulled back from Congress, or, or, or is that accurate? I think you're right to say that. Um, I, I would say, for example, um, the Youngstown case, that was the, the, the steel mills case from 1953. Um, there's a case called Curtis Wright Corporation from 1936 in which the U.S. government, first through Congress, then the president, uh, it slaps an embargo on the sale of arms uh, to two warring countries in, in South America uh, and makes the case that we don't want this war to expand, so we can't have American companies selling uh, armaments and munitions to them. And Curtis Wright Corporation broke the embargo. And so they end up all the way at the Supreme Court questioning whether the president can issue such an embargo like that. And interestingly, in 1936, so remember this is in the heart of the first term of FDR, um, the court sides in favor with FDR, and very importantly to your case about saying power flowing to the president, they say the power of the president in foreign affairs is plenary, meaning full, and that the founders intended for the president to speak with one voice in foreign affairs, because that was the most practical thing. You can't, in today's world, with 535 members of Congress, you can't have them speaking for the United States in foreign affairs. Um, so except for that uh, specific power of the purse given to Congress and its power to declare war, that obviously opens up a tremendous amount of power for the president, and we saw that carried out to its illogical extreme in Vietnam, didn't we? We did indeed. Um, you know, one of the things that, that um, I guess this is sort of my one of my pet peeves, is that I will hear uh, individuals, pundits, you know, they will talk about well, this is what the founders intended, or this is what the founders didn't intend. And, they, and during the impeachment of President Trump, I don't know how many people quoted the Fellows Papers, Madison, Hamilton. You know, I, I mean, they, they were stars for a, a week or two. <laughs> well, Hamilton was already a star. Yeah, but, you're right. Hamilton was already <laughs> a star. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, but I guess from your perspective, in studying presidential power, should we look at it as a continuum since its inception, should we be more nuanced, say, the presidency until um, the Civil War, and then from the Civil War to 32 and from 32 and beyond? Or I'm not sure if that's accurate, but something like that. How, how would you approach that? Yes, I, I, like, I like that approach. And, and to your case about uh, that's called original intent theory uh, in the academic world, uh, you have somebody like Justice Scalia, for example, was what we call an original intent theorist. And he would go to his blessed grave saying, I just want to know what the framers thought. And somebody, I would go to oral argument, and somebody before the court would say, well, your honors, uh, Congress uh, said that this should be the case, and, and this is the intent of their law. And he would say, I don't care what Congress said in its debates. I just want to know what the founders wrote in the Constitution. What are the words? What did they mean at the time? So he had this literalist approach and an original intent approach. I am not that absolutist, I have to say. And we, have to, we do have to be careful, and as you say, more nuanced, whether it's presidential power or any other governmental power, that we don't get into a situation where when the founders agree with us, we say, oh, I believe in original intent. And when <laughs> they don't, you know, if we agree with, like, 
the right of privacy, for example, that's not explicitly spelled out, that leads to things like establishing the right to abortion. Uh, and then people say, oh, well, the founders couldn't have been talking about that because that's something they never anticipated, so we just have to have what Justice William Brennan called a living constitution. So I'm somewhere in between. I think you have to find that happy medium. But on specifically the point of the presidency, uh, there's a, a great um, theorist uh, down at the University of Texas uh, named Jeffrey Toulis, and he's developed this these two categories, I think, to follow your point of how presidential power has uh, developed. And, it, and one is he calls the constitutional, the first constitutional presidency, and he says that was really the presidency uh, up until, you mentioned Woodrow Wilson, he says up until Woodrow Wilson we had the constitutional presidency, and yes, it ebbed and flowed, and uh, you had even Washington coming up with uh, executive privilege, and obviously Lincoln because of the Civil War, but then you have kind of a quiescence among presidents after that, really maybe up until Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and then certainly um, Woodrow Wilson. So the point of the Tulis is making is that presidents were pretty much following the Constitution and its formal powers and grant of powers and checks and balances. When you get to Woodrow Wilson, and you could also include Teddy Roosevelt in this, there's a switch that I think is fascinating that Tulis puts his finger on it, and he calls that second phase the rhetorical president and presidency, and that the power of the president, in addition to, as you said, being related to emergency situations, some genuine, some created by presidents <laughs> themselves, uh, he says that they began to realize, particularly through Woodrow Wilson, who, by the way, I should note, the only Ph.D. political scientist we've ever had as president, and he said, um, I can directly reach the people, and I think that's a good thing. Obviously, media, mass media was coming on the scene in the early 20th century, mass transportation. So presidents, as he went all around the country trying to uh, advocate for the Versailles Treaty, you, he could go and talk to people directly, and his speeches could be disseminated throughout the country. The founders didn't want that because they feared demagogues. And I would ask you and your listeners to think in terms of have we now approached a third phase uh, which could be called the demagogic presidency that we've gone from presidents yes directly relating to the people in this rhetorical period from T.R. Woodrow Wilson on and we see that you know really played out to the max in probably a good way with people like Reagan and Kennedy um, but what is this current situation that we're in with real growth in populism on the left and right? Does that lead us into demagoguery, which is not just directly relating to the people and trying to raise them up and appealing to their higher instincts, the better angels of their nature, as Lincoln called it, or is it appealing to the base instincts of the people? You mentioned, you, you, I mentioned Woodrow Wilson's Ph.D., so... Uh, uh, my question—I I was just thinking when you said that—he had a PhD. He taught—he taught, he taught constitutional law, but yet he made the argument that the Espionage and Sedition Acts were constitutional. Uh, I, I digress. So, well, uh, and he was also a virulent um, segregationist, yeah. white supremacist. Well, actually, so he's actually the first president to have to born, be born in a place that lost the war. I guess, right? This is this is from Virginia. 
Yes, indeed. He was born in a little town that looks like it should be pronounced Staunton, S-T-A-U-N-T-O-N, but it's pronounced Stanton, just very near where I'm sitting here in Charlottesville. Uh, And then he grew up primarily in Georgia. Um, So he grew up with that, and he took it to Washington, Washington, very segregated at that time. And so uh, we are rethinking uh, the legacy of Woodrow Wilson because of that. Well, you you, you know, we, we we keep coming back to this theme about Evolution. You talked about Scalia. You talked about, um, and this this latest phase is demagogic uh, presidency, and I, I guess you know, in thinking about the presidency um, and its power, the founders could have never imagined Abraham Lincoln, um, the Civil War, let alone. Um, John F. Kennedy dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis, let alone the current moment that you just referenced, and and from from your project, how do you put all that together to make sense in the present day? So what we call it is the presidency at the crossroads. Um, we have a new volume that'll be out in the next year um, called "The President and the Constitution," which you will which you will be on the public rally to talk about. Correct? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely happy to do it. Uh, and so that's how we're seeing it, that at various times the, the institution, the Office of the Presidency, has come to a crossroads. And you can picture that from like a wide spot in the road, as they say, for a little town where there's maybe one intersection on the main street, up to uh, all of these interstate highways intersecting. And I come from Louisville, Kentucky. We have one of those we call Spaghetti Junction or, or the, the Mixing Bowl up in northern Virginia. Um, and so you can see it as, as simple as that or as complex as that. And presidents have had to decide which way to turn. Should they go straight? Should they turn left? Should they turn right? Should they make a U-turn and go back? And so that's how we're thinking about it. And that, I think, helps to add that nuance. And the Miller Center at UVA, where I'm based in studying the presidency, is a nonpartisan organization. And so we do oral histories of presidents going back to Gerald Ford and coming straight up through. We've just released the Bush 43 project. We're starting on Obama. So we're used to talking to people from all sides of the spectrum. We've even interviewed some people from the Trump presidency. So we try to see it as, as objectively as humans can be, but try to see it as these uh, these times when presidents often faced with either emergencies or, as you say, th- th- just things that the founders couldn't imagine. And you, you mentioned the Civil War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, they couldn't have imagined nuclear weaponry. But, but here are two things that are meant to be positive, universal suffrage and social media. They could never have anticipated that. And so let's think about that as a crossroads now. And again, meant to be positive. We want everybody 18 years and older to be able to vote. And social media can be a very good force uh, in this world. But we've also seen that when presidents can directly relate to the people through social media and basically everybody can vote, that's where you add a segment to our constitutional structure that was not meant to be there. And then you have to ask, how does that disrupt what, what one founder called a machine that would go of itself? They believed in Newtonian physics, and they wanted to create this organic machine, our constitutional structure that would, would, would go of itself once you sort of wound it up, and then it would get momentum. But what if you, you throw sand in the gears? Then what happens? You know, you know, one of the things that we haven't touched on is sort of the, my words, unhealthy partisanship that is sort of seemed plaguing the present moment. But, but oftentimes we talk about this partisanship as though it is a new phenomenon. And I think 
um, Hamilton and Jefferson might argue, and John Adams and others might argue differently. How do you put the partisanship of today in retrospect of, of, of the American trajectory? How, how, where does it fit? In part, everything uh, new is old again, uh, maybe to flip that uh, old saying around, uh, because you're absolutely right. And here I sit in Charlottesville, the home of Thomas Jefferson up on the mountain at Monticello and the founder of my University of Virginia. And, uh, you know, he and Hamilton just went at it hammer and tongs. I mean, those who hated Jefferson and thought he was too much a man of the people uh, called him an atheist. Uh, because of his Unitarianism and his separation of church and state. Uh, and you had the Federalists in, in Alexander Hamilton and John Adams just going at it, so that uh, at the election of 1800 was so acrimonious that in 1801 they talked about having a day of prayer, a national day of prayer, to try to ease the pain, almost like a Bush v. Gore situation. So I would say we have always... From that moment on, we've always had partisanship. It breaks out sometimes in more virulent forms and certainly led to a civil war. I would add, though, again, two, two new factors, the universal suffrage, social media, and money. Money and, and television media and consultants and the impact of all of those things, uh, I think, have led to this extreme partisanship. But when, the, when the founders, when this... When this I call it the American experiment. This idea was first uh, drafted. Um, it was the house that, that was designed to have the direct contact of the people, be closest to the people, and not even the Senate or the executive branch. So they couldn't even imagine an executive like running glad handling retail politics, you know, New Hampshire and Iowa would be just totally inconceivable to them. Oh, absolutely. And remember, they, they really didn't have parties. They didn't have political parties. And they, there's no mention of political parties in the Constitution, although they do in Federalist 10, Madison talks about factions. And that's what they worried about. Factions, they said, could break apart a republic, as could the direct impact of the people. So you're absolutely right. They created that ambition, counteracting ambition. So the House was the only part of the federal government going to be selected directly by the people. But who were the people in those days? Who were the voters? White male property owners. And they didn't even trust them because they created the Electoral College right. to, to counter them in presidential elections. You know, one of the things that we talked about the expansion of power, and one of the things I, I think is unique about this, this presidency is the way that President Trump has used the Justice Department, that in that the Attorney General, he almost uses the Attorney General as um, his, his, his personal um, um, legal representation. Uh, and we've not seen that. I guess maybe the closest, and this is unique, maybe the closest would be for different reasons, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who for two years was clearly, in my opinion, the most powerful attorney general we've ever had. But how do, how, how do you see that? Yes, well, so this is a, a newer phenomenon in several ways. One is the Justice Department didn't exist until 1870. So we, that's where we can't go back to the founders and say, well, even though they created the concept of, of an attorney general, there wasn't a bureaucracy that went with it. Uh, so what about since then? Well, certainly since Watergate, the precedent has been for the Justice Department in the wake of Watergate, because it was being misused and abused by Nixon, 
and John Mitchell, his attorney general, and all the president's men, was to try to keep it as separate from the partisan politics of the president as possible. And you talk, we started talking about balance. That let's all get in our minds the picture of Lady Justice, right, holding the scales of justice that are supposed to be balanced and blindfolded. Justice is blind. So if you think of Lady Justice and the Justice Department, that's the way it should be and has been, really, certainly, again, at least since Watergate. And, and you're right to point out about Robert Kennedy that, um, and, and by the way, nepotism laws have been put in place since then. And, and President Kennedy, then President-elect Kennedy, did not want to choose his brother. He knew that people would say that's nepotism. But his father, who was very powerful, said, you need to pick Bobby to be your attorney general because you need somebody in the cabinet who will have your back. And he certainly did, and he certainly worked for his brother. But I don't think you can make the case that the Justice Department of the Robert Kennedy years was highly partisan and trying to hide lots of things that the administration was doing. There are, there are a few things you can point to, but not to the extent that uh, this president currently is doing. Yeah, no, I, and, I, and I certainly agree with you. I wasn't trying to make that. I was just thinking about just the terms of actual power, because when I look at Bobby Kennedy, he he uh, he ran Operation Mongoose. He was yes. the, he was de facto chief of staff because the president didn't have a chief of staff, and he ran the right. Justice Department. That's a lot of hats. Just, that is that <laughs> is, and and we should also be grateful that he was there during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Indeed, he was doing back channeling to the to the Russians. So again, uh, everything's old is new again, or vice versa. But yeah, again, there there were some things that we would say today were, were shady, and some of the things that the president was doing involving his personal life that Bobby Kennedy also was... Well, we forgot that one, and my brother's keeper. Oh, by the way. Yes, yes and trying to negotiate with J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, right. Um, beyond, beyond placing blame exclusively on the failure of our civic institutions, um, from your perspective, don't we, the people, bear some responsibility? Because too often we take an ahistorical approach. Most people don't have the luxury of sitting down with uh, Professor Barbara Perry and and, and sort of uh, taking a deep dive. But don't we? we well, we can't approach this like our favorite sports team. You know, like I'm a Dodger fan. I'm a Giants fan. So anything the Dodgers do are horrible. But that's fine for politics. We can't do that. I mean, for baseball, we can't do that for politics. And 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 how do we negotiate to pull some of that back? That is such a good question. If I had the answer, I would uh, be beyond this to be certain. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that what we have to try to back up on is this tribalism. Uh, that we see uh, sprouting throughout our system, that you're absolutely right that people now look at their political party uh, the way they would look at their favorite sports team and, you know, go down fighting and beating up the opponents. Uh, it's and, and by the way, uh, not just saying, well, we'll have to agree to disagree, but if you disagree with me, you are stupid, you are wrong, you're going to hell, and moreover, we can't even agree on what the facts are. I think that's what concerns me the most. Uh, because if you do look back, and some of this they call the Cold War consensus, we did have a common enemy. Uh, but if people got out of line with McCarthy in, in the 50s. And so, again, it's not we can't look back and say everything was a golden age. Uh, but if you do look at, I was just reading Chris Matthews' book on Nixon and Kennedy. They were friends. They came to the Congress together. They came to the House together in uh, 1947. They came to the Senate together. And then 
of course, uh, Nixon was vice president while Kennedy was in the Senate in the 50s, and they were good friends. And you can see the letters they wrote back and forth to each other. They were civil. They could talk to each other. And that's what we don't have now. And, I, again, I wish I had the answer to turn back that clock uh, to civility. But we, we the people, as you say, we have to do that, and we have to start in our families and in our neighborhoods, and we have to vote. You know, we don't get enough people out to vote. And sometimes if you leave it to others, you leave it to extremists. You mentioned Kennedy and Nixon being friends. I mean, one of the things that would never happen now is I believe Kennedy gave money to Nixon when he was running against Helen Cahagan Douglas. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know that, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, they could they could get along, and even as recently as, as Ted Kennedy, I, we did an oral history of, of him and uh, all the people who worked with him, and even people on the opposite side of the aisle, Alan Simpson, for example. You know, they would all say. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't agree with anything that guy stood for, but by golly, we could talk to each other and have a drink on occasion. And and uh, if if you got sick or somebody in your family got sick, the first note you would get would be a handwritten note from Ted Kennedy. Well, well, on that on that note though, when we make our favorite sports team, in this case, our favorite, our preferred party, when we when we make them superior. Um, doesn't that devalue the Constitution? Certainly if people want to put the, put the party and partisan politics ahead of the Constitution, because that is our higher law, uh, and the, not only is it our higher law and our most basic fundamental law, there is a supremacy clause in the Constitution in Article 6 that says this Constitution and the laws and treaties made under it are the supreme law of the land. And uh, there is a whole book written by a cultural historian named Michael Kamen, and the book's called A Machine That Would Go of Itself, that reference that I made. And it's about the reverence that we've had for the Constitution. And it shouldn't be blind, but uh, I, I believe in it, and I believe that it, there should be reverence for it. And I believe that the laws and the treaties under it uh, uh, should be revered until we decide, oh, no, here's something in contradiction, and we've developed, and there are amendments, and uh, we have things like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Uh, but I do believe that. I just, I just did a, a talk at the National Archives the other night, and uh, it was about the 2008 election and and where we had come since then. And I said, you know, it's hard to believe the 2008 election. Remember the famous instance of John McCain being told by that elderly woman mm -hmm. in a town meeting that Barack Obama was an Arab? And she couldn't vote for him because Barack Obama was an Arab. And John McCain took the, very gently took the microphone from her and said, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, he's not. He's a decent American and a good family man, and I just happen to disagree with him. And that seems like a 100 years ago. Can we believe that's just 12 years ago, that somebody like John McCain could be so civil out on the stump and just say, no, you're wrong. That fact is not a fact. You think it is, but it's not. And this is a good, decent man. We just disagree on policy. Where is that now? Can we get back to it? I want to again thank my guest, Professor Barbara Perry of the University of Virginia's Miller Center. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter, and the archive broadcast can be found on iTunes as well as SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank 
Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams.